Hey, Phantomaniacs, welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I am your host, Phantom Troublemaker, and I had not planned on recording this intro today, but like they say, why put off until tomorrow what you can do today? And tomorrow, I will be getting home from work and getting in bed as early as I can so that I can get up early and enjoy my weekend, uh, as I hope you all do, possibly while listening to the Needless Things podcast. Obviously, you're listening to the podcast if you're sitting here right now. So, my back is in pretty good shape, and we have nailed down the culprit, the reason that for the past month, my back has been in and out of various stages of pain, ranging from excruciating to mild discomfort to I think I'm okay, but I don't want to move too quickly. And uh, what it is is I wear a mouth guard when I sleep. I, I talked about this on the show, I, I guess, a little over a year ago uh, that I was grinding my teeth and that I had to spend a freaking fortune on a mouth guard. Uh, and now this mouth guard that I spent so much money on is ruining my back because... I grind and clench my teeth to such a degree that I have made impressions in the top portion of the mouth guard. If you're not familiar with how mouth guards work, uh, which I hope you're not. I hope most people don't have to wear these things. I hope most people's uh, jobs are not so stressful that they're sitting there grinding their teeth to nubs uh, at night while they sleep. But this mouth guard clicks into place on my bottom teeth and the top portion is a slick I don't know what it is it's like an acrylic type thing if you ever had a retainer it's it's kind of like that uh, like the plasticky part of the retainer but I have been clenching and grinding my teeth so severely that I have worn spots into the top of the mouth guard where my teeth are locking in at night. So my jaw wants to grind my teeth, but they're locking into place. And what's happening is I'm getting these muscle... uh, My whole body is infuriated by this, and so it clenches up uh, in this immobile rage. And then when I wake up, I I scream like a, uh, a child whose feet have been lit on fire. If I can make a strangely horrifying comparison. Uh, I promise I, I don't actually know what that sounds like. I'm just making assumptions. Uh, but that, that's what's been going on. So about a month ago, it happened for the first time, and I didn't realize it. And, and I do still think that the jumping around and stuff uh, for the game show thing that we filmed uh, and, and didn't ever use... Ugh. Uh, I think that's what sort of triggered it, but these relapses I've been having uh, are, are from the mouth guard, and I stopped wearing the mouth guard, and I feel pretty great right now. Uh, last night, 
the best thing happened because I went to the doctor a few weeks ago. I can't remember if I mentioned this or not. And he gave me muscle relaxers that really, I don't know that they're doing anything. They're not good muscle relaxers. They're not the kind you take where you go, oh, shit, I should have sat down first. They're just, they might be placebos for all I know. Uh, thank you, Stephen King's It, for explaining placebo to me. Uh, so the other night I had four ciders and two shots of fireball. And uh, thank you, Gary Mitchell, for that fireball. And that did more for me than these supposed muscle relaxers ever did. And I woke up yesterday morning and felt pretty great compared to how I felt uh, for the past month, aside from when I was at Dragon Con. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm not wearing the mouth guard anymore. I got to take it back to the dentist and get them to smooth it out or or, or whatever it is they can do to get this thing fixed but you know you'd think that's a warning they would give you hey this is going to keep you from grinding your teeth down to nubs and costing you a fortune in dental work but it is possible that at some point this could immobilize your entire body and put you in severe pain just keep that in mind just something to think about it maybe maybe you know how you get a prescription uh, now and it says side effects, possible side effects. You have to read the little thing and sign the screen to say you understand that uh, your your uh, your headache medication could give you explosive diarrhea or whatever the case may be. Uh, maybe this mouth guard should come with a little side effects thing that you have to sign. Uh, and then if I hadn't signed it, it'd be my own fault. But at least I would have been aware of it, and I wouldn't have had to go this past month keeping putting the mouth guard in and and having this happen but anyway thank you guys for listening to my backstory hopefully my backstory right uh hopefully i will not have to talk about it anymore i would love that i would be delighted with that because what i'd rather talk about is how i i just posted uh this this will be yesterday to you guys uh, but it is today to me, episode 10 of the patron-exclusive Needless Things patron cast, which is about 30 minutes or so each time I do it of this sort of thing. It's just me discussing what's going on with the website, with the podcast, and it's something that you can only get if you're contributing $5 or more a month to supportphantom.com. So go check out supportphantom.com. There are several different levels. I've changed everything. Uh, if you contribute a dollar, you now get access to the Patreon feed over there, which has stuff that I don't post anywhere else. If you contribute $5, you get access to the Needless Things patron cast. Uh, it goes up from there. You can go look at the rewards at supportphantom.com. But something I'm going to start soon is audio versions of old articles from needless things i will be reading uh p posts from the past and i haven't decided what i'm going to call this yet or if i'm going to call it anything but it's a way to refresh older articles give you guys maybe an opportunity to hear something you had not read before and I just enjoy talking and reading and doing that. I think it'll be really great. And I think maybe I'm going to do the first one for free, you know, to get you guys hooked and then move on from there. So we'll see how that goes. But please go visit supportphantom.com. Uh, this is 
Today, if you're listening to this Friday, the day that this came out, this is the last day to get September's rewards, but we are heading into October, and if you are listening to this in the month of October, I will be putting effort into making sure that the Needless Things mystery boxes for October are extra spooky and kooky. They will be as Halloween-themed as I can possibly manage. So go to supportphantom.com, check out the rewards, and just know that you're helping me out with the podcast, uh, with the website, with, with everything that I do. Uh, but, but again, the, this money, it's not going to toys. Toys are my own budget. That's a separate thing. Uh, this, the, the Patreon money is strictly for Phantom Troublemaker Pursuits. So go check it out and see what you think. Okay. What's happening today on the show? Hmm. Could it be Mr. Larry Hama, one of the greatest comic book writers and one of the most amazing creative minds of all time, an inspiration to my childhood that has carried all the way through my adulthood. One of the creators of the greatest, or really the sole creator of the greatest mythology of my lifetime. And, and yes, I will put just for me personally, uh, well, no, I can't say greatest mythology because I, I can't put it over Star Wars, but all of the G.I. Joe characters came from today's subject, today's guest, Mr. Larry Hama. He wrote all of the file cards for the original G.I. Joe, a real American hero toy line in the 80s. He writes, or he wrote the original run of the real American hero comic for Marvel and continues it to this day for IDW. And just has a great storytelling mind, has a great mind for creating characters. And while, yes, Star Wars is the greatest mythology of, of my lifetime, but G.I. Joe is, it's, it's, it maybe affected me the most because, I mean, when G.I. Joe came along, it took me away from Star Wars entirely. Uh, and there, I, I've talked about it before. There are all kinds of things behind it, from the the connection uh, that I was trying to establish with my father to just loving the improved articulation of the toys, and and also the GI Joe Real American Hero line was it was different in that all of these characters did have these backstories. Yeah, you had. Uh, you had the biographies on the the He-Man cards, but it was like a one or two line thing. Star Wars, you knew who the characters were, but back then we didn't get to see the movies all the time. Uh, you know, I didn't know anything about Lando Calrissian aside from he lived in Cloud City. I, I don't know that I knew that he owned Cloud City, really. I don't know that I picked that up, and I understand it was made clear in Empire Strikes Back, but you got to think, Empire came out in 1980, so I was four when I saw it in the theater. I probably didn't see it again until I was at least eight or nine, if not later. Well, no, they probably showed it on TV. But, but anyway, my point here is the G.I. Joe Real American Hero characters were more fleshed out to me than any other characters at the time when they came out. And those personas that Larry Hama created were so strong and resonated so well that to this day they're still used as the foundation of the franchise 30 years later. 
and that's amazing because look around at other toy lines and uh one how many have lasted that long which granted i can't claim that gi joe i mean it's it's uh still in comic book form as a matter of fact there's a new gi joe comic book coming out from idw that is based on this new hasbro shared universe that they're working on but just the the characters of gi joe mean so much to me and larry hama's work means so much to me and the fact that i get to sit at a table with him uh while he was absolutely amazing he's such a good talker he's got such good stories and we were really fortunate with this panel because when you go into a panel like this you don't know for sure that your guest is going to show up uh, I've, I've done i think three panels with william stout now and you know they're at dragon con they're busy they're doing stuff and and yeah they say oh sure i'll i'll, I'll do that panel but you never know what's going to happen so you have to be ready to either do a full-on gi joe panel with yourself and other panelists or do a larry hama panel and whatever he's going to want to talk about or however that's going to go. Now, I didn't know sitting down that this was going to be end up being a Q&A, which worked out for the best. Uh, usually I hate Q&As, but we were very fortunate in that uh, each of us at the table asked Mr. Hama a question, and then we went to the audience, and the audience all had good questions, as you'll hear. And it turned out to be fascinating. Uh, we touched on some great stories from Marvel Comics, uh, some really deeply personal stuff with mr hama uh just re really a, a, an absolutely fantastic panel i was in awe sitting next to him the whole time and i don't even know if i've got a picture of me sitting next to him i'm sure there's some out there somewhere and you need to, tr need to track him down and find him uh and then afterwards all the gi joe cosplayers which looked uh, those guys were fantastic uh got a picture w with him and it was just an amazing time an amazing experience and i've met i've met him before but this you know this was a whole other level it really was and i hope you guys enjoy listening to it i'm gonna i'm gonna stop jabbering and uh we're gonna go right into it now Classics track panel in the past. You remember the Tetris room? Yes. Yep. Are you yep. glad we're not in the Tetris anymore? Yes. You want to know yes. why? Yes. 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 Ladies and gentlemen, I will do the <laughs> All right. 
As I say, if you're using the DragonCon uh, app, the reason we're no longer in the Tetris room and have this bigger room is because all you people last year went, give them a bigger room and rated the panels. So please continue the tradition. If you enjoy this panel, rate it five stars. If you do not like this panel, you're up against the wall. I mean, <laughs> rated five sarcastic stars. Ooh. Ironic stars. Yes. So, please use the app. Please rate us. We ask. There are a lot of people that don't, but that's how we got this bigger room. Is how we get a lot of cool stuff. So, with that, also we have a Facebook group, and if you're going to do any social media, we have a hashtag over there. It's a little long, but we don't. Please use it. And I'm going to introduce the panel and then get out of your way. <clears throat> Uh, you thank everyone for coming, and you, sir, are. Oh, I am Noel Wood. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Dot com. <laughs> and a member of? Of the finest, the uh, G.I. Joe and Cobra Costume Club. Woo! I'm Phantom Troublemaker, NeedlessThingsSite.com, and the Needless Things Podcast. Yeah. Uh, I'm Larry Hama. Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jonathan Williams, uh, wrestling with popculture.com, ESO Pro Wrestling Roundtable podcast. <laughs> and I'm. Wow. <laughs> Okay. I'm going to move over here. Um, <laughs> Lord, Lord Vader, calm down. We'll just use the... There we go. Yeah. 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 They always tell you they fixed it. Just have people line up. We'll put the microphone at the end of the thing. And then, so that'll make more sense. These work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> Try this one more time. <laughs> My name is Michael Bailey. I host a comic book podcast called Views from the Long Box, as well as do other geeky things online. I was going to be the question runner, but the microphone hates me. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, anybody, guys, we're going to start with uh, a little bit of talking. And then we'll do questions. If people have questions, please start the line there. And, and please, five at a time. And someone ask their question, the next person will That means you, Kevin. <laughs> you're one of these first in line, you're up. Go. Alright, so, fandoms, take over. Well, I think uh, since we're sitting up here waiting for people to line up, I, I think maybe if everybody's sitting at the table, uh, if you don't mind, Mr. Hama, if we could each maybe give you a question, get your thoughts on specific things, and uh, maybe start over at this end with Noel. Have you got anything for Mr. Just Larry Hama? Put me on the spot. Why don't you start? Since okay, you I'll start. I'll start. Uh, <laughs> well, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll start because I, I have actually had this question brewing for a while. Uh, in your time at Marvel Comics, uh, Jim Shooter was, uh, to my understanding, he played a big role in you being on the G.I. Joe book. And I just wanted to see if you had any thoughts about your time working with him or, or just about that book coming about. Well, I mean, I guess you could say he had a big uh, effect because... When Hasbro came to uh, Marvel and wanted uh, to do a uh, 
G.I. Joe comic, um, you know, toy books, uh, licensed properties were like the bottom of the barrel as far as the, the, the artists and writers were concerned. Um, they, they paid the lowest rates, so you could never get an A-list writer or artist to work on a licensed book. Um, I was a full editor at Marvel at the time, 1981, and I've been trying to get writing work in comics for years. But since I was a penciler and an inker, um, and all the editors were writers, see? So the editor, you know, writers don't like the idea of artists writing their own stuff. It um, threatens them to the quick. <laughs> um, so I, I even had dispensation from Shooter to write for other companies, even as I was working as a full editor at Marvel. Um, I was writing horror stuff for Weezy Jones and Warren Comics, and I was the only person at Marvel that had dispensation to work for other companies because I could prove that I'd gone to every single editor at Marvel, and none of them would give me writing work. So. Of course, they didn't even think to call me in the first round when they needed a writer for G.I. Joe. They contacted every contract writer and every non-contract writer, and every single writer turned it down. So then Jim Shooter went from office to office. He started at one end of the building and went to each office in the row and asked all the editors and the assistant editors and the interns and the guy that went out for coffee, <laughs> the, the weird geeks in the mail room, you know, and uh, none of them would write the book. And my office was the last office in the row. Um, and he got to me and I said yes, because I, I would have taken it if it was Barbie. <laughs> I, 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 I had no interest in, you know, writing a, a military book. Um, I came into the business because I wanted to do funny animals. Um, I'm a duck man. <laughs> and, uh, nobody was buying funny animals, so I had to. Uh, you know, what, my first job at Marvel was was penciling Iron Fist. Um, so. Because uh, superheroes, you could get work at, but you know, there was no work for funny animals, and uh, so I was just desperate to get any sort of work. And then everybody, every other writer and artist, told me that uh, doing a toy book was a career killer. That <laughs> if I did a licensed book, I would never, ever be offered an A-list book at uh, any of the companies, and they were right. <laughs> I was never offered an A-list book at Marvel while it was an A-list book. Um, they offered me Wolverine when it was about to be canceled. Um, and even though G.I. Joe was the number one selling book in the country for a while, and Wolverine was the number two selling book in the country, I still couldn't get them to consider me for an A-list book. 
because they said, well, those are flukes. <laughs> and, I, you know, and I said, well, you know, it's been like eight years. <laughs> uh, you know, and like I've sold more comics combined than, you know, the five other supposed top writers, you know, put together. And uh, no avail. Also, I didn't get invited to a single con for the entire run of the Marvel G.I. Joe or the entire uh, Wolverine run. Not a one. I only started getting invited to cons about eight years ago. <laughs> and not a single issue of G.I. Joe or Wolverine that I, that I worked on was ever reviewed in a fanzine. So that's how much of a pariah I was for, <laughs> just for doing a toy book. Well, I've rambled on. (laughs) I'll I'll tell you this much. For myself and for probably a lot of people around my age, that G.I. Joe comic book is what sparked my love of long-form sequential storytelling. uh, Because it was at its best. That's where it came from. So your work at the time may not have been appreciated, but sure as hell is now. Well, you know, the thing is... you. What, you know, I, I started out working for Neil Adams and, and, and at Continuity doing storyboards and motion boards and commercial stuff. A lot of it was kind of boring, really sort of commercial stuff. <laughs> you know, you draw pictures of people holding like cereal boxes. <laughs> and, but the thing that really impressed me was that no matter how crappy the product was or how stupid the product was, Neil was able to psych himself up into like thinking this was the best thing since sliced bread. You know, and he would, we would just sit there and go, man, these, this, these, I mean, we got in something called coffee bags once. They were like tea bags, but they had coffee in them. And it was like, it was a terrible idea. They tasted horrible. And we all said, this is a really lousy product. And Neil was like, oh man, it's it's, it's convenient and it, and it, it doesn't taste half bad. <laughs> and that was a major lesson for me, you know. So I and I think a lot of people when they when they when they took on a toy book, especially if they're doing it at a, at a, at a comparatively low rate, um, they just want to just slough it off, you know. But um, I learned early to, to to no matter what the job is, give it your best shot, you know? and uh, I think that's important in, in, in most of the aspects of life. Um, Always give it your best shot. Great. You ready? Um, you were uh, yeah. responsible for basically creating the backstory for G.I. Joe characters with the file cards. Uh, who are some of the characters you particularly liked writing stories for? And who are some that maybe you thought were kind of stupid characters or something that you ended up liking? Well, even if the, if the character was was stupid, you know, you had to, you had to find something in the character that you can latch on to and, and, and do something with. Um, 
you know, I, when presented with like crystal ball, <laughs> I was like, wow, you know, what can I do with this? <laughs> but then when I, I started to realize that, you know, the, the, the aspects about him that I didn't like or I thought were kind of, you know, weak were, were, were things that I could amplify, you know, and I, and I started to picture him like, oh, you know, he's one of these guys that has a little psychic parlor in a run-down strip mall. Yeah. <laughs> and he's great. Uh, you know, once I figured that out, everything else sort of, you know, f- f- fell into place. You know, the, the, the whole, you know, his whole character. And, 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 and then he became interested to me. Um, that if you just go with like, you know, the, the first thing that comes to your mind about like, you know, what the guy looks like, you know, you're, you're stuck in a rut. And I always thought it was best to go against the grain. But I also based a lot of characters on people I actually knew. Um, which was a way that I could keep track of them, you know. Um, Sometimes that sort of like goes askew. I mean, in a, in a recent issue, I uh, I did a whole uh, part of an arc of a story with, where Stalker goes home to Brooklyn, but in the, in the file cards it says he's from Detroit. The reason for that is I based the character on a guy I knew named Ed Davis, who uh, did two tours as a lurk in, in Vietnam. And he was actually from Brooklyn. And, you know, the family that's depicted in the comic is, is, is his family. And, um, you know, all of his, you know, shtick and mannerisms are this guy. So I can really, you know, like, characters that, that, that were like that, that are based on real people, really sort of have legs because they're really consistent. Because I, I have something, I have a reference point. I, I can't wander off, you know. So there's a real consistency to the characters because um, I have somebody to uh, refer to. In fact, I use the same guy, Ed Davis, um, in Wolverine as uh, John Wraith. And, uh, you know, he made it into the movie where he was played by uh, Will I Am. Um, and somehow they got the cowboy hat and the suit and the, and the glasses. And that's exactly what they did. <laughs> you know, he was, um, you know, a, a badass guy from Brooklyn who uh, went to Nam and became even more badass. And then, then he spent some time in England where he acquired some um, Savile Row suits. So he would wear these like British custom-made suits with a white shirt, no tie, a Stetson cowboy hat, and Tony Lama cowboy boots. <laughs> and um, I was on a subway, and, oh, and he, he had a 357 Magnum tucked into the back of his pants. <laughs> but um, I, 
was on a train with him once on a D train in Brooklyn. And these uh, three guys got on the train and they see him and they start woofing on his clothes. Wow. <laughs> and he's just sitting there, you know, and, he's, and the more they woofed on him and the more he ignored them, you know, the more sort of head up they got. And they were like you know, looming over him and getting into his face about about what he was wearing, you know? It was 1973 or something you know, in Brooklyn. And, you know, his right hand moved so fast I didn't even see it, it looked like that. And this object bounced off of this guy's chest and hit the subway floor and spun about three times and stopped. And when it stopped, you could see that it was... Uh, a jacketed hollow point 357 magnum <laughs> and you know they look at that and they look at Ed and Ed says the next one comes at you a lot faster <laughs> <laughs> so and I actually used that whole scene in a Wolverine comic um, many years ago and, and then somebody called me about two years ago and said, uh, you know, uh, uh, what was that TV show with the, that guy from um, uh, Deadwood? Uh, oh, Justified. Justified. Yeah, Justified. <laughs> yeah, man, I was watching Justified the other day and they, they used this really great line. He like flicks this, this bullet over this guy's chest <laughs> and says, the next one comes at you a lot faster. I said, wow, that's pretty, some pretty good writing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I've, I've, I've wandered off again. <laughs> bring me back there. Um, my question is, what was it like when you were presented with something like Sergeant Slaughter? And then were you, did they want you to incorporate that also into the comics since it was going to be a toy and in the cartoon? Oh, sure. But, you know, you, you, you make the best of what's given to you. I mean, another lesson I, I learned from Neil Adams, you know, he said, you know, there's no such thing as, as a lousy character, you know, it's what you do with it, you know. You forget that, like, until Neil took it over, you know, Green Lantern and, and, Green, and Green Arrow, you know, they were like, you know, yeah. you know be, <laughs> B-list characters. Green Arrow, especially, he was like, somebody there like four or five pages at the back of somebody else's book you know um, nobody gave you know cared much about Daredevil until they gave it to Frank Miller Frank Miller you know completely turned it around um, so it's not the characters it's really you know what you can what you can do with it um, and you know if you if you look hard enough you can pull anything out of it you see that recently you know um, you know, Harley Quinn came out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, you just have to have a positive attitude about creating this stuff. Well, and that's why it's such a good thing for for different writers to switch through different characters because you get people with visions, you know, specific visions for Batman or Daredevil or Spider-Man or whoever that, you know, maybe the writer that's been there for a while didn't have that idea, so it's time to freshen him up and do something new. 
Well, you know, something new is always good. It just when when they just sort of decide to like scrap everything and you know. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's start it. It's like and they do that continuously. Uh, like, yeah, they're like not, not so much reboots, <laughs> right? Everybody hold yours for a second. I'm going to try something. Oh, boy. Uh, okay. Gary. Okay. Noel's booted up. I wanted to test the mic in the pulse. Oh, it's fine. Okay, so go ahead. Yeah, no, and I, I do have a question because um, when you came back and started writing again, uh, picking up after 155 with uh, with IDW, did you was did you have a little rust, or were you able to slide right back into it like it was riding a bike? It's, you know, well, when you live with something for 14 years, you know, you just sort of, it's, it's a universe you already live in. Yeah. So it's not like having to slide back into anything. Um, it sure didn't feel like you, there, there was, I mean, there was no disconnect. It, it felt just like it had picked back up and it was great. So, Well, you know, well, first of all, I don't, I don't have anything planned out. <laughs> the, you know, I, I literally write everything page by page panel by panel. I don't know what's on page three until I get to page two. You know, I don't know what's on the last page until I get to page 21. Um, when I did the silent interlude issue of number 21, I got to like page 13 or 14 and there's a fight between Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow and Snake Eyes gets his sleeve torn and Storm Shadow has his wristbands unravel and I thought what can I do with that? <laughs> and it, it occurred to me well you know it'd be kind of interesting if they both happened to have the same tattoo you know and I had used this I Ching hexagram in Iron Fist on a character named Lei Kung the Thunderer. He had this on his breastplate. And the reason I chose that particular hexagram, number 63, was that it was perfectly symmetrical and I could remember it. <laughs> broken line, solid line, broken line, you know, etc. Um, so I, I plugged in that hexagram did not know what it meant, did not know why both of these guys had it, you know. Uh, so to me, at the end, that mystery of the reveal was a real mystery. You know, five issues later in 26, I had to explain why <laughs> they both had it and what, what the hexagram actually meant. So, um, but the advantage of writing that way is that uh, if I can surprise myself, I can surprise the reader. You know, that I wrote the scripts purposely so that there was always a little bit of a cliffhanger at the end of each page. And, you know, if I don't know how it's all going to resolve, at the last page myself, it's very hard for the reader to figure out. How it's gonna happen, <laughs> you know? Uh, I know that when I'm reading stuff myself, I get to page three and I think, oh, well, you know, the Joker did it. <laughs> <laughs> or, or whatever. If I, if I figured out 
what the hook is or what the you know what the MacGuffin is, I'm, I'm not interested anymore. You know, I I try to put my uh, you know readers' shoes on when I'm doing this stuff. Um, not to be manipulative, but to to make sure that you know the, the, the work has that air of uh, expectancy or mystery or uh, or whatever, and, and and also by by not mapping out all these plots beforehand. Uh, I'm putting Cobra Flying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm putting it all into the hands of the characters themselves. You know that the to, to make the stories character driven instead of plot driven. You know that if that. You know, once you map out a plot and and, and you and and you know that this is the the end, the denouement, then what you're doing is you're just forcing your characters to you know, manipulating them to get to that point. And sometimes you have to violate the characters to do that. You have to vi- violate the core of, of the characterizations um, because. If, if it's that rigid, you know, you, you get to page 12 and you realize, wait a second, you know, this guy wouldn't do that, or, or, or she wouldn't react that way, you know, and then you're stuck. But, you know, if you get to page 12 and, like, you realize that, and you go with it, you know, <laughs> then it, it has a... A realism to it because it's it's reacting the way the, the actual character would react, and then that gives you the problem of figuring out <laughs> what to do next. You know that, um, and and I never knew that that was always a challenge. You know, I remember there was an issue of GI Joe that came out. And when you know when it came out to the bundles at, at, at the Marvel office, and I was working at the office, you know, Chris Claremont came barging into my into my room holding the issue, and he said, "Wait a minute! At the end of this issue, you had all the bad guys sinking into quicksand. <laughs> How can you do that? How are you going to get them out of there?" And I said. I don't know. (laughs) And at the beginning of the next issue, they were all out of the quicksand, you know? And nobody said a word. (laughs) You know, that's when I realized, hey, you know, you can... um, But that's the thing. If if you're... Hidebound by the structure, then then you run into problems. It's, 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 when, when I was an editor in Marvel, I would tell my writers, "Well, listen, you know, you you've been reading Peanuts, the Charles Schultz script, all your life. You know, um, can you tell me what happens in any given 
Sunday script. You know, like, oh yeah, well, like, Lucy's got this football. (laughs) (laughs) Charlie Brown tries to kick it and she pulls it away and he falls on his ass. But what was the gag? You know, what? I mean, that's just, you know, this action is like, you know, you've seen it like 500 times. But what was one specific gag that was based on that setup? I can't tell you. None of you can. (laughs) But if I said, sit down and write me, you know, a one-page analysis of Lucy Van Pelt or Schroeder or uh, Linus, you could do it because you know you you know those characters, and you've learned about them incrementally the way you learn about real people a little fractional piece every day for years, you know. And the reason you go back and read the next script is that you like those characters and you want to spend time with them, you know. And uh, I always thought the same thing was true about. Harry Potter, you know, I read all the books, I saw the movies, but I don't go back to see the next movie because I thought, wow, the previous plot was really killer. (laughs) It's like you like those characters and you you want to spend more time with them. And, you know, and that's that's the thing that um, to me, the plot is just a basic thing to, to hang really interesting characters. Cool. All right, so we're going to go to our first question. Yeah, uh, I was always really impressed when I was reading your comic book growing up that uh, for whatever reason, and I'd love for you to just explain this to me and us collectively, that even though Hasbro was pumping out toys at a rapid pace, you almost loyally stuck to characters who hadn't been on toy aisles for like six years. So like Scarlet was still in the comic book. Uh, Dot was still in the comic book. Hawk, Stalker. And even though their action figures have long since been phased out, I wanted to ask, did Hasbro ever put pressure on you to get rid of those characters? And by extension, what were your dealings like with Hasbro? Uh, I've heard some things about the formation of the Dreadnoughts, for example. <laughs> Well, they pretty much left me alone. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, you know, a lot of the uh, the interface, you know, the, the 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 people that actually interface between Hasbro and and and, and Marvel or any of the licensors were uh, young ladies fresh out of college, the first job, you know, and. Um, you know, after a few years, they were totally over, you know, they would go, 200 characters. <laughs> I mean, it was too much for them to uh, find out about. I mean, and, and so they they just left it to me, you know. Um, the same thing happened with Conan the Barbarian when I, when I took over editing it. The licensing lady, Mimi Shapiro, was a very nice lady, but she didn't know anything about Conan. <laughs> So whenever, you know, a licensor or whatever would, would call the Conan office, she would call me and, you know, ask me the question, 
and I would just make it up. <laughs> oh, yeah, like, oh, yes, well, that's, you know, the uh, land on the other side of Lemuria, <laughs> you know, where the, uh, the lizard guys live. And, you know, so she was uh, convinced that I was... You know, after a few years, she was convinced that I was the world's foremost authority on Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> and, um, you know, the same thing with, with, uh, with G.I. Joe, that after a while there was just so much material and characters that, that, that nobody else could keep track of it. You know, the editor, you know, they would change the editors and they couldn't keep track. They didn't know who any of these people were, you know, so everything was sort of deferred to me. And, you know, I never reread a single story after I, I read it. You know, I, I'm not a continuity freak. You know, like, probably 90% of people here know more about the continuity than I do. I mean, I'm just, I just go from issue to issue. <laughs> and, you know, because again, to me, what's important is the characters and keeping the characters consistent. Okay. Larry, uh, you actually already touched kind of 10 things that I was going to ask regarding your writing method being very organic and not knowing where you're going. You get there. Um, besides the interview. Can you speak up a bit? Besides the interview. I'm closer. I'm closer. Life says over I'm closer. With a. I want to talk about, again, what you've talked about very heavily already a little bit with your uh, writing method being very organic and not really knowing where you're going until you get there. Besides Silent Interview with you kind of surprising yourself with the, the shared plan tattoo, were there any other story arcs or issues where once you finished and got to the last page you kind of looked over and really like, wow, I didn't expect myself to get there. I didn't expect to land there when I started. Just about every issue. <laughs> I, I literally, I, I finished writing the first issue, and I sat there and I went, what the hell am I going to do now? <laughs> like, I felt like I shot my wad here. And then I, uh, I felt that way at page one of every issue. You know, and I would sit there and go, oh. And then it occurred to me, well... On page one, I get them into a really impossible situation. And then I've got 22 pages to get them out of it. And that's the story. You know, that's the basic plot. And the story comes out of, you know, how the characters organically react to that. And, and the more that the characters are organic and, and, and are, are true to their own nature, uh, the better it hangs together. Okay. If I could jump in for a second real quick, because this is kind of related to what you were talking about. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to know where Cobra Commander's son, Billy, <coughs> where he came from, where his story came from, because he was such a major character in the comics uh, that was never related to at all with Hasbro. 
<laughs> well, I think they, found, they finally came out with a figure. Yeah. Yeah, they did eventually, but when I was a kid, I didn't have a Billy, and I was furious. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing was, when you put, the, put together the story structures, you realize there are certain things missing, you know, that, hey, there's no kids, <laughs> and uh, not enough girls, you know, and, and, and not enough people with faces. <laughs> I mean, this is the situation that arose in the very first issue, and I'm, I'm putting together the story, and I'm realizing this is kind of hard because none of the cobras have a face, <laughs> and you know it's sort of hard to do acting and tell you know, me whatever about it. in a visual medium, <laughs> you know, like you know, you, you know, in comics, people are going. You know, all the time. And, you know, here you got a guy with a reflector, you know, or somebody, you know, with a mask covering their entire face. So that's why I came up with the Baroness. I said, well, you know, we'll have this, this, this girl and she'll, you know, her face will be uncovered. And let's dress her all in black leather. <laughs> because... That's sort of really cool, you know? And so, you know, she wasn't a figure. She was, you know, supposedly just a comic character. And then, you know, Hasbro said, oh, you know, we should do a figure of her. Uh, they were reluctant to do female action figures. Like, they, they did Scarlet grudgingly. And um, because their feeling was that uh, a male action figure was an action figure, but a female action figure was a doll. And that uh, an 11-year-old boy would not buy a doll. So, but I think they got proved wrong pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, the Baroness figures were snapped up pretty fast. I think probably for other reasons. <laughs> my, my, my dad was a big fan of the Baroness. He thanks you. Yes, probably you're almost in We all love Cobra. But I've always had a fondness for Cobra Guard. How did you come up with them? Because I always enjoyed reading them when they popped up, especially their insults, like the captains and the horn dogs and stuff like that. Well, actually, I didn't even come up with the October Guard. It was um, Tom DeFalco came up with those, with that, that whole concept. And, you know, I, I took the stuff that he did and tried to, um, I think I renamed them. Um, it's a horror show. I, I know I named him. Um, uh, it's, it's a phonetic for, you know, I swiped it from Clockwork Orange. <laughs> but uh, I sort of like, you know, this was when the Cold War was still on. You know, yeah, I saw it. We were kicking the loop of all the military departments. I always, always read that. Those bits tend to see love to, you know, the pro Russian propaganda that they always stop. I was wondering how you always do that stuff. 
Well, I, you know, I thought, you know, I'm a, I'm a sort of history buff, you know, so I, I sort of, um, uh, I, I like the, the whole thing of, of having, you know, uh, you know, each of the characters is, is not, they're not Russian, you know, they're, there's two characters who are Russian and the, and the rest are from Warsaw Pact nations. Um, I don't think a lot of readers were quite aware of that. I know, I know, I tell some younger friends of mine about, you know, children of five cards, and they're like, what the hell is Well, you know, the, the, the Warsaw Pact is, a lot of people don't even know what that is anymore, but uh, uh, anybody who was in the service in, in the 60s and 70s uh, knows who the Warsaw Pact is. Um, no, I had a lot of fun with the, with the October Road. Okay, thank you. Uh, I know you said you like uh, writing, you, you got into comics for funny animals, and that you like writing character-based stories. I'm wondering if you've considered writing for the My Little Pony comics, because they have different <laughs> writers and different artists for a whole lot of the series. <laughs> I, I, I know very, I know very little about that that particular universe, but I, I wouldn't have, you know. But most of the stuff that I've been offered, I, I knew nothing about. You know, uh, I'm always willing to jump into the deep end of the pool. Uh, they asked me to to write the novelization of the death of Captain America uh, a year and a half or two years ago. And I said, I don't think I've read a Captain America since Jack Kirby was on it. There's <laughs> a lot of catching up to do. And um, plus, it was due in three months. And the reason I, I got the book to do was like everybody else turned it down. <laughs> um, but I, I read the, you know, the five years preceding, you know, and, and all the arc, the entire arc that was in, in, in that, that story, plus 40 to 50 issues that, that were related to that story, and then I went on the wikis and the internet and, you know, poured through all the bios and all, because every single character in the Marvel Universe had made a cameo in that story, you know? <laughs> and they, you know, they were all at the funeral and they were all, you know, so a tremendous amount of research, but, you know, I handed it in in, in three months. Um, and it, it wasn't too awful, so... Uh, <laughs> that's the thing, is that, like... Um, it was another thing that I learned in the Army and from Neil was that uh, no matter what, what it is, you know, never admit that you don't know how to do it. <laughs> um, just, I, had, I got this advice from, from, a, from the first shirt, first sergeant. You know, she said, yeah, don't ever admit that you don't know how to do something. You know, just work your butt off to like learn what it is, and then you know get it right. You know? um, but if you say you can't do it from the get go, you just defeated yourself. 
wanted to jump in real quick. Have you uh, had a chance to listen to the graphic audio version of your book, of The Death of Captain America? No, I didn't even know there was one. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a company called Graphic Audio. They do full casts and music readings of books. Oh, really? They've got the Marvel license, and that's actually how I came across it. Uh, so I would recommend it just because they got actors and music and all kinds of stuff. Well, they never used to send me anything. You know? I mean, I remember once I, 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 I went out the back door at Marvel where the uh, the dumpsters were. <laughs> I found huge piles of all this these foreign editions that were like Spanish and Italian and Finnish and German and Mandarin editions of Wolverine and all the stuff that I had done and, and, and G.I. Joe. Just stacks of this stuff. I never even know they existed. And, you know, so I went up to foreign licensing and I said, well, you know, the stuff, you know, they send you this stuff and you just throw it away. You know, it's like, why don't you just call us? We're downstairs, two floors away. <laughs> and say, hey, do you want this stuff? They couldn't be bothered. So, Hi, Larry. Hi, guys. Hi. Uh, so, G.I. Joe has always been a huge part of my life. And uh, a lot of what that was was it, it rang true to me. I mean, uh, my father was in the military. All my friends' fathers were in the military. Uh, I ended up going in the military myself. But I just wanted to ask, I know you draw heavily from your experiences in the Army for G.I. Joe. Uh, what other uh, resources, references, or even people did you talk to during the run of the comic to just draw your information from it and make it also so realistic and so true? Well, you know, I had a I had a relationship with the the, the uh, army public relations officers in New York. Um, I got to know them. Uh, they would all you know send me all sorts of interesting stuff. Uh, and a friend of mine, Lee Russell, had written a whole bunch of books uh, for Osprey and, and, and other places on uniforms and equipment. He was a guy that spent. He did two tours in Vietnam in engineers, and he was one of these guys that was sort of a fan of military stuff when he went in. And he would send home boxes to his mom's house every week full of the most esoteric stuff. You know, he used law tubes, uh, you know, uh, native-made patches, you know, uh, you know, uh, Vietcon pit helmets, you know, what, whatever he could, he had copies, Xerox, not before Xerox, like Rexograph and Mimeograph, local unit newsletters, local patches, you know, indigenously made patches, uh, things that nobody thought to say or cared about. Uh, and he was a tremendous. Uh, I gave him. I, 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 I gave him some credit in the last issue, and, and uh, I actually got him the gig being the uh, technical consultant for tour of duty uh, and uh, some other shows, and that got him started. And then he he became technical consultant on Platoon, uh, uh, Miss Saigon, and, and lots of stuff. Um, but, you know, he was a great resource. And I, I first met him uh, at a place called Skybooks in Manhattan. 
which was this military bookstore that was the people that worked there man they knew the most esoteric stuff <laughs> you know like I'd go in and ask about something and oh yeah that's a you know so and so so and so's book and it's on shelf three over there and like um, so I had a lot of help you know because you know by the time I started writing G.I. Joe everything that I really knew was or you know the SOP was like gone you know it was um Passe, you know, the uniforms had changed, uh, the hardware was in transition, uh, and, and a lot of the jargon was changing. Uh, so, uh, what I got out of my experience, personal experience, was the attitude of, of soldiers, which doesn't change much. And that hasn't changed even today. And um, you know how they they react and interact with each other, and that you know that sense of camaraderie, and um, uh, and I draw on on people I knew. So that does that answer your question? Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> so as a kid growing up. I couldn't wait to get my hands on the next, the next ones, and it was so good to see the good guys just beating the snot out of the bad guys, and hundreds of thousands of bad guys dying. And then came that one issue where all of a sudden now there's eight Joes dead, and it was you know, and it just it impacted, it made a huge impact. And then okay, you try to get over it, you know, some of my favorite Joes are now dead. And again, in the desert, another 10 or 12 jokes are dead. How, whose decision, not that I'm going to, but was that like a personal decision or was there pressure from on high saying we need to cut back, we have you know, 400 GI Joes, we need to cut that down to 200? <laughs> <laughs> um, it was my decision and for, for two basic reasons. You know, one, because, you know, it's insidious to do a, a, a military book with no casualties. You know, that's just. Uh, I don't want to bring it, down the house. It's it's just, just, I, I think it's morally wrong. You know? <laughs> um, so, and uh, I, I try very hard to have people just stay. Dead. You know, I mean, in the comics universes, you know, it's like, oh, you know, death is like video games. You know, you get an extra life. You, know? <laughs> uh, you cash in your energy points, and you pick up those little diamonds, and, you know, you're okay. Um, I wanted to to show that there's 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 prices to pay, and that uh, uh, and people get damaged. And I, I just, I just loved it. You know, when I got older, I was able to reflect upon that and go, "This is the price that my friends and family are paying, so I can live the way I want to live." And thank you. Probably two more questions. So you and this lady.
Yeah. <laughs> 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 right. Well, in fairness, you had killed off Quinn and you had killed off General Flagg you know, by the time you issue 19. Anyway, uh, going on of, off what Repeater had said, how, how much... I know you start, said you started in the business wanting to draw funny animals, and at yesterday's panel you had said that you couldn't really write a realistic military book because nobody would believe it. But yeah. did you ever anticipate the extent to which you'd really become, say, W.E.B. Griffin for elementary school kids? <laughs> <laughs> it would be the, the first window that so many of us would see into the profession. And that we would fought, that we would eventually some of us go that route yes. ourselves. Well, well, no, because you know we none of nobody thought that it would that the comic would last more than a year. You know, and then it was always sort of a surprise. You know, when it wasn't canceled, <laughs> and you know when when Hasbro got to the third year of, of the toy, they were gearing up to like stop it. Because common wisdom of the time was uh, a toy line lasts three years max. You know, and if you don't bail out, you're going to be in cabbage patch land. This you know, horrible place where you're stuck with 50 huge warehouses full of these ugly ass dogs. <laughs> nobody is going to want forever. You know? um, and it was reinforced by Beanie Babies. Yes. People thought, wow, this is going to last forever. And when it Died, the death was grisly. <laughs> um, so, you know, they're, you know, it's, it's a business, so they're, they're totally geared to like, okay, you know, we, it's going good right now, but we know that the axe could fall at Toys R Us tomorrow, <laughs> you know, and the odds say that we should bail. But somehow, you know, Bob Krupus and, and, and Kurt Bazigian convinced the powers of evil. No, this is different. <laughs> and they gambled on it, and the fourth year is what sort of did it. And they said, well, maybe, you know, the paradigm has changed. Yeah, because... 30 years later, I mean, you've got Charlie Company, First 502nd, and Fort Campbell. They're still slapping Cobra logo and everything. Your legacy lives on in the profession, Larry. It truly does. Well, thank you. Hi. I have so much admiration for your ability to adapt your art to the opportunities you were given. Obviously, it wasn't what you intended to do originally, um, or at least the characters you wound up drawing um, and writing. But I was curious if you could talk a little bit about how your experience as not only a New Yorker, but also a Japanese American being born at the tail end of World War II impacted your creative ethic and your career as a whole. Well, you know. New Yorkers tend to think that, you know, they, they live at the center of the universe. Um, 
which is kind of true. <laughs> um, I sort of like the fact that, uh, you know, at 3 o'clock in the morning, if, you know, if I want a pastrami sandwich, I can get one. <laughs> or an egg roll, or, you know, whatever else I can think of. You know, there's some place that I can get to that will sell me that at 3 in the morning. Um, and, and all the public transport works around the clock. Um, growing up as a Japanese American, it was like dealing with a lot of things about you know, my family had been in the camps. Uh, they pretty much lost everything they had and uh, were in concentration camps for the duration of the war. Um, my mom, who was a seamstress, um, made parachutes. That's what they did. <laughs> um, they had whole shops set up where they, they made war materials in the concentration camps. Um, they, for what's hard to understand about that is, is how that did not alter their their belief in the democratic system or the country. They, uh, the internees volunteered for the service in droves. Um, they formed the two units, the 100th and the 442nd. 442nd Regimental Combat Team was the uh, most decorated unit for its size in World War II. And they did it mostly with Purple Hearts. Um, and these guys, you know, they fought their way through uh, Italy with the worst stuff and into Germany. Some of the units were the first ones to uh, liberate uh, concentration camps in, in Germany. And meanwhile, and all the time they're doing this, their moms and dads and sisters uh, were sitting in concentration camps in Utah and Northern California, out in the desert. Um, and, you know, that has to affect you in some way. Um, that they, they never had fostered any sort of resentment about it. They still remained very patriotic and extremely uh, democratic. <laughs> um, until fairly recently, I never knew an Asian who was a Republican. You know, every, every Asian I knew uh, voted the straight Democratic ticket you know, their entire life. Um, and I once asked my mom you know, why she voted the straight Democratic ticket for her whole life when it was the Roosevelt administration that signed executive order that put you all into the concentration camps. And she said, well, if the Democrats could do that to us, what would the Republicans do? <laughs> <laughs> That's my perspective, you know, that 
Um, I don't know how else to put it. Did I answer your question? Okay. <laughs> Going down the panel one more time, we have... Uh, Noel Wood of uh, dorkdroppings.com. Phantom Troublemaker, needlessthingssite.com, and the Needless Things Podcast. Lowry Hama. Jonathan Williams, wrestlingpopculture.com. Michael Bailey, usefromthelongbox.com. And if I could, real quick, before we go, um, I mentioned earlier, I remember the finest, as you see there, is wearing one of our shirts as well. We are doing a calendar right now. Um, we are raising money for Canines for Warriors. It's called Girls of the Finest. This is our third year doing it. we need, uh, we got about a month to raise about $8,800. And um, if uh, we can get everybody's support, that would be fantastic if you could just donate. If you don't, donate this 25 particular charity is really terrific. It's, it, it, it pairs up. Uh, uh, dogs that are that are on on the on the kill list with return with uh, with returnees who have like PTS who have plug problems and it's, it's a really great yeah, it's a, worthwhile it's a charity really really great charity uh, twenty five dollars will get you a physical calendar uh, I believe seventy five gets you a shirt this is last year's uh, there's a lot of other perks. You can donate a little bit. You can donate a lot. Every little bit helps. Or if you share it, it's on Indiegogo. Um, if you can't afford to, you know, to uh, to donate, then share it with uh, your friends, your family, because it's a really, 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 really great cause. Please remember to bring us in. Can I tell you guys something? For years, I said Larry Hama. Just because it seemed right to me. And then somewhere, I do not remember where, I heard Larry Hama. And it stuck, and I don't know what's right. And he did not say his own name during uh, the panel. Which, by the way, was at Dragon Con 2016 and was part of the Dragon Con American Sci-Fi Classics track. Which I totally forgot to mention in the intro because, you guys, it's 7.30 in the morning. I've been up, uh, I don't know how long now. I worked all last night. I'm tired. I'm ready to wrap things up. But I wanted to sit down and get this done for you guys because I know you're going to go to supportphantom.com. And even if you can't contribute, you're going to spread the word and share it with your friends especially your rich friends who have extra money laying around to throw at a guy in a mask who has a podcast and a website and really wants to travel around the country and do stuff at various conventions. But anyway, I still, I still at this point, sitting here now, do not know if it's Larry Hama or Larry Hama. I, I'm leaning towards Hama, and, and I hope that's right, or else I just sound like a dum-dum throughout this whole thing. And, and I think... Uh, I think Gary at the beginning also said Hama. So at least both of us are dum-dums, if anybody's a dum-dum. Next week, 31 Days of Halloween begins, and we will have a live Needless Things podcast commentary on Shout Factory's, or Scream Factory's, new Blu-ray release of The Thing next Friday. I love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Needless Things Podcast. You're the best. 
You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Downcast, or in the ears of a Trader Vix employee. And of course, it's at needlessthingssite.com. Love you. Mean it. Uh Uh-huh.